This is the Book Marketing Action Podcast, and I'm Becky Robinson. Since 2012, my team and I have partnered with more than 100 authors to launch more than 130 business books. On this podcast, I'll share the best insights and actionable ideas from our work so that you can implement sustainable activities to reach your goals for your book. Whether you're a seasoned author looking to breathe new life into your book or someone who dreams of writing a book someday, this podcast will help you be more successful in getting results as an author. Hi, everyone. This is Becky Robinson, and I'm so glad to be with you for another episode of the Book Marketing Action Podcast. Today, I am with Chris Brogan, and Chris is someone I've followed weekly through his newsletter for about a decade, at least, if not longer. And before we started recording, Chris and I were talking about a time we met years ago at a karaoke bar with some other colleagues, and a lot of time has passed since then. So Chris, before we get started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work in the world? Well, sure. And it changes so constantly. One of the things I love doing is going back and listening to really old guest spots and then going, oh, is that what I was doing then? Right now, I've been doing some work recently that I sort of landed into, which is I'm doing some advisory work with a mid-sized company where I'm acting sort of as chief of staff and chief of staff reports directly to the CEO and sort of goes to extend the CEO's will. So if the CEO can't be in a lot of places, they send me. If the CEO needs some advisory help or some sort of strategy buddy, that's what I do. I've done everything in this company so far since we rebranded and relaunched the website, told a new version of the story of what the company is and does because they had changed, but their language still talked about what they were doing 15 years ago. So we fixed that. There's been a few acquisitions. There's been a lot of acquisitions because that's, I guess, what they're doing. And then in the process, each time, it's funny how I, I always say to people, you know, if you're a carpenter and you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, that old expression. Well, that's true everything. I'm a writer first, no matter what else I do. So every one of these things to me is like a writing challenge. You know, if I write the right thing, then people will understand what I need them to do. So that's what I'm doing. So I do that. I also run a small company called Owner Media Group, where I help small businesses and solo businesses get the skills and the tools they need to figure out their next steps, act as sort of a private advisory board to them. Awesome. I have loved following what you're up to. And you know, I learn something from your newsletter every week. So your writing is super effective. Thank you. So, you're welcome. So Chris, let's talk a little bit about your journey to build online influence. When did you start showing up online? And how long have you been working at this? Forever. So before I even knew what influence was, because I don't think anyone talked about it that way. I mean, I was getting into old-time bulletin board services back in the early 80s. And I did that just because I was a kid growing up in Maine. The only conversations in my neighborhood were Van Halen or Led Zeppelin. So I was Van Halen. A Mustang or Camaro. I was Camaro. And would the Red Sox ever win a World Series? And I didn't care. But I also said, no. And I was wrong. They did finally very many years later, 86 years between World Series wins. But then that was it. That's all you could talk about that and the weather and you were done. And so I wanted to talk about the really important matters of the day, which is, do you really think Superman could beat Batman or how would it work? Is Spider-Man a cooler superhero? And nobody was around. So I had to go find them online. And so since way back then, I started blogging in 1998. We called it uh, journaling back then. I started podcasting and making video in 05. I was user 10,202 on Twitter in 06. So I'm never the first guy, but I'm a pretty early guy to all the things that come on. And then as, as I've gotten older, as I've become a grumpy old man, I've come to not get onto the newer platforms because I just look at them and think kids these days. 
So I've sort of slowed down. My favorite social platform is email. You mentioned my email newsletter. I think it is still the most delicious and delightful network that you could possibly have is access to someone's inbox. And so my, although I still make lots and lots and lots of video, I have a daily video show. I think of the inbox as the most powerful social network in the world. And that's where I put the most of my energy to connect professionally. And I have done that following your example. Cool. Has it worked for you? Are you, are you happy? It, with it has. Yeah. I agree with you about email and its power. So Chris, for years, I've been attributing a quote to you. And I actually tried to Google it to see if I could act, you know, connect the dots that you actually said this. But the quote is, you have to add value before you can extract value. Chris, did you say that? And if so, what does it mean to you? I wouldn't have said it that way. I mean, I believe in that premise, but I say things like be there before the sale. Like if you look around for be there before the sale, you'll find it. But I definitely feel I embrace that mindset immensely. And that's probably why. I mean, maybe I paraphrased it by saying that, but that was just like a throwaway sentence because people's eyes weren't nodding as much as I needed them to. And so I was saying, you know, you have to give people content, give people information, give them what they're looking for. I mean, there's a couple of different ways we buy depending on what's what's being sold, right? We buy impulsively, like, oh, a hot dog. I should eat this. And there's no real thought process, especially if you actually eat a hot dog. There's not a thought process that happened before that where you probably wouldn't eat the hot dog. Uh, uh, no kidding. I, that, yuck. Right? You know, Oh, hot dog. But every now and again, there's a moment where you're like, mm, I think I need that. Well, so that's one thing we buy impulsively. There's things we buy that we think about a little bit, like almost kind of obsessively, especially if we can't quite afford it, we're working on saving up for it or, or justifying it, right? So it's like, I bought a Camaro in 2010. And it was the first nice new car I'd ever owned. I'd only owned like sensible cars, a couple of used cars, but always super sensible. Saturn. I grew up on Saturns. And when I bought that Camaro, I bought it cash. And there's no reason to have a Camaro. It has hardly a backseat for children. I had two kids. You know, it was like the dumbest thing I could have bought. <laughs> I live in Massachusetts. It snows like nine months out of the year. And this car, even if it rains a little too much, then the car doesn't move. And but I ooh, I bought it. And you know why I bought it? Because I always wanted a Batmobile. I That's Batman. awesome. And so I bought it. And that was like 11-ish years ago. And though that was an impulse buy, I also like read about Camaros, looked at Camaros, thought about Camaros a lot. And so that's where you could do that add value part. You, you know, if you make really interesting content or if you're a Chevy and you show people riding around and explaining why they're cool, that I'm here for that, right? So I think that there's a lot of things we can do for people in between their purchases that helps them make decisions. You know, and, and there's we're often thinking about something that we're going to take a minute to make a decision about. And I guess in, in selling through writing, the other thing I like to do is I like to extract as many barriers. Like what, what are the reasons you'd say no? And one of the reasons you would say no is, well, these people don't seem like they're in it for me. So if I could be there and be warm and nice and kind and all that sort of a thing, and you say, I think I'll spend some money with this person, it's usually because you've spent time with me for a while. I mean, like you said, you've been connected with me for years. If I put something up for sale, you'll think of it in a different way than if somebody you don't really much know. Yeah, that helps. So Chris, how would someone know if they're offering value through their online presence or not? It's a simple question in some ways. It's hard for some people to see it. And it speaks to who that person is sometimes, I'm sad to say. If what you've created is something the person can run away and do something with on their own, that benefits them and it makes their world somehow better without anything to do with you, then that's likely the thing. So, so because some people will say, oh, I made this. I get, I get a pitch about once every two days from someone saying, would you please share this article I wrote? Because it's really valuable. 
And I'll look at the article sometimes if I'm feeling vaguely generous, which I'm not after all these years. I feel like, no, get off my lawn. But every now and again, I'll click and it won't be valuable. It'll be a big ad for something. And I mean, about zero times have we ever said, no, that was an incredible ad. Oof, I'm going to wake up the family. Guys, you got to see this, right? We don't do that. But let's say, for instance, I'm really interested in, oh, I'm changing up my diet and I want to understand this gut biome stuff a little better. And man, I keep reading about that you need to eat more of this and more of that. But like, what's somebody's regular, like weekly diet? Can you put up a diet plan? Well, if you're selling that diet plan, then the one thing you might do is you might give me a peek by giving me sort of the grocery list, or maybe you'll give me a peek by saying, here's just a day in the life of my gut biome diet, right? And I'll go, oh, that's really cool. I can really extrapolate something from that. Even if I don't buy your thing, I feel like I was served. So now I think later, that wasn't enough. I need more. I'm going to buy that person's thing because I've already been served. That's a really helpful explanation. So Chris, I'm curious what role consistency plays for you in building the reach of your work. So I have a mixed answer to this and it's because I quit a lot of things. I always say quit, but never surrender. It's fine to quit things. It's fine to go, you know what? This isn't the right way. I think I'll take a different path, right? And people get weird about that. They're like doggedly determined to go the wrong way harder. And it's like, okay. But I think if you quit faster, then you have a lot lot better shot at getting a better connection to the thing you're going after. So with consistency, I don't mean be consistent like if you start a blog, then keep it going for 10 years. I don't mean you must have episode 600 of your podcast. I've had six or seven podcasts since 2005, just because I like making different things. I launched three different shows before I landed on the Backpack Show. I had the first one was called Point of Contact. Second was called Catch Up. And then I was like, "Mm, I'm going to do the Backpack. I think that's a better way to do it. That was the right one. Right. But with consistency, the end product of that, Becky, is be everywhere. I just had this two days ago. A a friend that I haven't talked to one on one in a while, like maybe two years, like it's been a minute. And he and I went to connect. He goes, Man, I see that backpack show everywhere. I see links to it. I see ads. He said, Is there some company that's paying for ads for you? I said, Yes, but because of the software I use to make the show, it has nothing to do with me. And he goes, Yeah, but I see you everywhere. That consistency, it's almost like a visual. You know, they know where I am. If you kind of just go out and do your little marketing campaign and then vanish, you're a bad person because you're not there. You're not part of the community. You're just, oh, I'm just here to sell. I'm going to go back to my mountain lair until the next time I need an enemy to eat. Right. Like it's, that's not how it works. You got to be part of the experience. So I'm everywhere I can be. And when conferences were still a big thing, when we could actually touch humans, I would go to as many conferences as I could because you're like, man, that broke and he's, he's everywhere. Well, gosh, who's top of mind when someone says, who can I get to do X for me? And that's how I made that work. I mean, people would just say, "What you just fly to conferences all the time. And at one point in my life, that was pretty much a yes. I was getting the chance to speak everywhere in the world. So why not? So that consistency is important. But it's, it's consistency of presence, not just your action. You know, People who are incredibly good at maintaining streaks aren't as interesting to me as people who are good at producing something. Wow, that's a really interesting nuance that I hadn't thought of, the difference between consistency of presence and consistency of action. Now, that said, though, Chris, I'm going to push back a little because there's not a Sunday that I haven't seen your newsletter. So how long have you been doing that? Every week since some day, one particular Sunday in 2009 somewhere. Yeah, see, that's consistency, right? But it's because it continues to reward me every week. Every single week I do. So it's like I put the, uh, the hook in the water, I pull the hook and the fish comes out. I go, oh, I guess I'll keep putting the hook in the water. It has never not found me a fish. So 
if it stopped, if people stopped caring what I do, I've, I've launched subsequent newsletters on top of that newsletter that I quit all the time. I have a new one going right now that who knows how long it'll last because you know there's only a couple hundred people over there. It's not several thousand and it's not necessarily killing. Am I allowed to ask how many people are on the Sunday list? Oh, yeah. Uh, we call the list all the time, which is the first thing it's important to note. We have a thing that says, if you haven't clicked, touched, or done any kind of response to us at all in six months, we kill you. So it's at 16,000. Last I saw, it was like 16,540 something or 16,450 something. 16,000. But it's been some level of 16,000 for years because we just chop, 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 chop. The minute someone gets bored of us, we chop. So our open rate is also 78% which is a little different than most people's open rate. Yeah, that's huge. Wow. So Chris, I'm curious what you think longevity does for you. You know, you said you started blogging in 98, you started podcasting in 2005. Is there something about just sticking with it and staying in the spaces? There's a plus and a minus on longevity. The plus is that people go, man, that guy's been around. The minus is people love shiny and new. If I had shiny green or purple hair, I would be doing a little better for me. If I didn't have a white beard, I would be, you know, people would be doing a little better for me. I look like, you know, deranged Santa Claus uh, goes on an adventure. So I think that there's some minuses there. There is some ageism, especially in high tech and especially in things like media. But I would say that I'm rocking it as best I can. I'm, I'm trying to let people know that, you know, I, the body might be old, but the ideas are next year's. So stick with me. It depends on the brand too, right? Like we always seem to like, if it's a consumable product, we want what's new. We could keep the same restaurant in the same building and just keep putting a new sign out every nine months and everybody be thrilled. But if we want something like a doctor, we want them to have, you know, decades of experience. Yeah, I I guess like there's a balance there, right? Because what I see, Chris, is that people think, you know, hey, I wrote a book, I'm going to show up and suddenly I'm going to get traction and reach. And so to those folks, I want to say, hey, you need to stick around a while. You need to invest long-term to have the impact that you want. It is most definitely. A lot of times people plant the seed in the ground and the minute they see the green little tiny leaf pop up, they go, oh, here we go. And then they pull everything out of the ground and then it doesn't really grow anymore. There's a lot to this. I mean, I did a video. What's kind of funny about saying this is this in this video, I talk about being an overnight success and how it took me 10 years to be an overnight success. That video is almost 10 years old now. It is also my most viewed video of all time. But I was saying 10 years ago, it took me 10 years to be an overnight success. I'm still working on being an overnight success in just new places, right? And it's a very long process, Becky. And I think that this is a generational feeling. This is me saying kids these days, look at this white beard. I say to people all the time, you are just way rushing this process. This process is... People have to feel comfortable with you. They have to f- kind of feel into it a minute. You know, it's not the length of a TikTok. It's the length of a, a real old-timey book with like 260 pages. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll have to find that uh, video and hopefully we can put that in, in the show notes so people can check out Chris's 10-year-old video on how it took him 10 years to become an overnight success. And I can't wait to watch it. So Chris, I know you've written nine books and you're working on your 10th. Is that right? Do That's I have right. the count right? So how have those books affected your career? The uh, It's funny. What a great question. So trust agents, I'd always wanted to be an author. Let's start there. I was like three, four years old. I was thinking, I wouldn't be an author. I was five years old. I start writing things. And it's a scenario where I wanted to be an author more than I wanted to actually do the work and write for a lot of years. 
And trust agents comes around because of a really weird conversation I had at South by Southwest of sort of, I'm suddenly like one of the most popular bloggers in the world at that moment. And this person looks over and goes, Hey, how come you don't have a book deal? And I said, I don't know, probably a lot of work. Like I wanted this my whole life, Becky. And now they're like right here, big company, Wiley. Why don't you have a book deal? I was like, I don't know. Doesn't sound interesting. <laughs> and they go, you should have a book deal. I was like, well, okay. I said, can I call my friend Julian? Like maybe he'll write it with me. That'd be fun. Like, you know. So I gave away my first book deal to my friend Julian and said, let's both do it. We'll split the money. Okay. So they gave us a, a thing and we wrote it and we just yelled at each other every day. You owe 2,500 words. Did you put in your 25 words? Yes, I did. Okay. Julian always was nagging me because I had like a lot of work at that time. I was I was speaking and flying everywhere. So it'd be like 2 a.m. in like Vancouver. And I'd be like, okay, I can get 2,500 words. That's fine. <laughs> well, <laughs> words, right. And I, we got the book done. Trust Agents was the biggest change of my life. It was a New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller, Amazon Inc. 800 CEO read through a big party. And we were part of that. So 2009, we like swept the awards. It was like the egot of writing. Not really. <laughs> um, no Pulitzer. But I got over a million dollars in consulting and speaking fees from that book. So that's pretty life-changing. Over time, by the way, and over a million in revenue. It wasn't like I was, I don't live on an island. Um, <laughs> right. And am I so long gone? It's dust. But the next book after that was Social Media 101. A few people bought it. Nice of them. Thank you. Next book after that was The Impact Equation. We got an insane advance to write this book. We went to another publisher and nothing, nobody liked it. Hardly anyone read it. We still haven't paid off the advance. It's 10 years later. So that's how that went. My next most successful book was, this is so crazy to me, Google Plus for Business. And Google Plus had just come out. Everyone was kind of like, gee whiz, that's neat. My uh, editor, Catherine, rest in peace. My editor, Catherine says, hey, could you write us a book in like six weeks? And I was like, I guess I could. She goes, we'll give you 50 grand. Okay. So I wrote the Mm -hmm. book and I wrote a book called Google Plus for Business. Now, if you read this book, it's a lot about business and not as much about Google+. Plus. It's, it's very much like you could use it today even without that software. However, that book was my second most impactful book because I got a lot of speeches for it, which blows my mind. So many people paid to have me come in and speak. Not Again, not about so much Google+, Plus, but about some of the, the business insights they got in there. Hmm. I did not know about that book. That's cool. It's ridiculous so- that it was the popular. It's the second most popular book I ever wrote, which is... That's book writing, I guess. Which is your favorite? The one I wrote that even fewer people have ever read called The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth, published in 2015 from Wiley. There's bats all over the cover. That is a book about entrepreneurship for weirdos, something, weirdos, misfits, and world domination, world dominators. And it was it's basically a book for like the purple-haired people of the world, the people who decided to start a company that don't look like two white guys shaking hands across the table. And so I we put examples in there. I, I put examples. I wrote that by myself. I put examples in there of like Doug Quint, who ran Big Gay Ice Cream Company and who started as just like a little ice cream truck in Manhattan. He was going to just do it for fun for the summer and made it into a pretty good empire. And I started looking around for other people like that because both my kids are super weirdos. And I thought they're never going to be able to learn how to run a business with the books that are out there right now. So that's the book where people come up to me. That's the book where people cry when they talk to me. That's the book where I talk about it on a stage, which has only been twice ever. And they go, oh, this is the thing. But the reason that nobody bought it was because it's a book about entrepreneurship. And my audience who pays for my big speeches was often corporate. So no corporation wants you to come in and talk about how much fun you'd have if you ran your own company. So that was a bad thing. So 
for the next bunch of years. I've, I've been fallow since 2015. I haven't written and published a mainstream book since 2015. And the reason, because I know you want to know, is because what keeps happening is a, an argument between fear and what I want to do. So what I want to do, I keep starting to write a book about what I want to do. And then my fear says, no one's going to buy that one either. You're a big stupid idiot. Because like, really, if you think about it, this will be so crass, but people will get the, the concept. After I wrote a book called you know, Entrepreneurship is Cool, my next book really professionally, if I want to get back into people's brain trust as far as corporations and all that go, has to be like, who do I have to blow around here to get a job? <laughs> you know, that's what the book should be titled. And I can't do it. Like I, I keep starting to write a book about corporations and I keep going, uh. So now I'm working with a corporation. I can see how I could maybe thread this needle a little better, but I refuse to put out my next book until it really sings in my heart. And if no one buys that one, then that's okay. I have a new metric in my mind, which is just that I did what I said I wanted to do. And I guess I'll make it like that. That's something else. I've personally been putting off the book writing thing for a long time. And uh, I'm glad that I finally got here. Why Uh, do you suppose it took you so long? Imposter syndrome, are you not... I mean, that might, I mean, that could be part of it. I, I think honestly, maybe I needed to do the work before I could codify my thoughts in a clear way. So my story is that I pitched a few books to Barrett Kohler Publishers before I got a yes on a proposal idea. Then when I finally wrote the proposal, I got a yes right away on the contract. And I think I just didn't have enough experience yet. I think the book that I'm writing now is better than the book I would have written six years ago or eight years ago or whenever I really wanted to. But I definitely Mm -hmm. resonate with you, Chris, in that like, you know, as long as I can remember, I've wanted to write a book. So I hope you get back out there soon. Well, you know, the the way that I'll get out there, there's two things that are going to happen. So this company that I'm working with, they have some aspirations of having a book that sort of describes the ecosystem they're in. So I might write a book that I would not normally have written that talks about a company. But the more I learn about this, this, the bigger company that this company I'm with works in. Imagine there's like a app store for B2B type businesses. So so there's all these companies that sell apps that you've never heard of from this brand that nobody really knows except for people who are industrial kind of businesses. And what's exciting is that everything in what they do in their culture, this larger group as well as this company I'm working with is all very much about love each other, make sure you know you're not competing. You're always all the rising tide gathers all the boats. It's just not a way businesses talk about business and these guys do. And I'm really passionate about that. Like I'm I'm excited about the idea that these people espouse stuff that I've told companies to do for decades and they're just doing it. So that's why I'm going to really enjoy writing their book. And But the thing is, because I'm working on their book, it makes me have to write my book because I'm like, oh, well, come on. Like you can't write books for other people. It's going to have my name. I'm not ghostwriting it, but I can't, that can't be my 10th book. So now I'm racing myself. I'm writing two books at the same time. So you can make your 10th book really sing. That's the plan. So Chris, one last question. I'm curious, what if any role generosity has played in your life and career? Endlessly, endlessly. Giving and getting. There's anytime, the very few times ever where I've tried to hold money to myself, it's never worked out super well. But even you know, uh, going through the pandemic, I lost 96% of my revenue on like the 1st of March. Like everything stopped. Every contract I had got canceled. Everything was done. And I said, oh, guess I'm broke. I had nothing to fall back on. I had no like secret savings, no extra special secret something account. I had no crazy stock portfolio to cash in. I had no money. And I just started, you know, oh, well, I guess I'll start looking for work. So I started looking around and 
one of the first few days in, I, I reached out to a friend of mine uh, who I hadn't talked to in a bit. So I thought we should check in. We just started talking to each other back and forth in Instagram DMs of all places. That just happened to be where we started talking. And he ends up landing a pretty interesting gig where it's got the potential to be giant. And he says to me, Hey, I carved you out a, a role in this thing. And it's not a ton of money, but like if, you know, even if it's like 4,000 or so a month, is that cool? He goes, I've got your first check pretty much ready to go. I said, oh my gosh. Yeah, I have no, I have 0,000 right now. So four is a good number. And that was generous of him, Becky. And he didn't have to do that. He was as broke as me. And in his head somewhere, he thought, well, you know, I've been talking to Chris every day. I guess I should, you know, cut him in. And he did. But, and that's how I work. That's how I operate is, you know, I get my first book deal and I say, hey, maybe my friend Julian could write the book with us. And they're like, <laughs> okay. Right. That's like a stupid choice, but Julian's a great author. He ended up writing a bunch of stuff. We wrote another book together, Impact Equation. He wrote a book on his own, The Flinch. He's a great writer. But no one would have had that opportunity to explore him if I wasn't just such a weirdo. Or maybe it would have taken longer before they gave him his solo book or something. But that's how it worked. So I, I'm generous to a fault. In the meantime, I'm always asking questions of people I don't have any business asking. And they always answer. They always answer. So there's a role called chief of staff that I'd never heard about, but evidently that's kind of what I'm doing for this company I'm working for. So I asked a guy who's chief of staff to the chairman of LinkedIn, hey, what do you know? And he answered me right away. I asked a friend who's a CTO of a good big company, hey, I saw you had C you had a chief of staffs in there. What are they like? What's that like? And they give me their time. They talk to me. And I do the same back. You know, If someone says, hey, I need to ask you a question or two. I'm not generous to people who want to jump some steps in the line and take over something. A lot of people send me emails every day saying, I wrote this really cool article that I want you to link to on your very super highly Google value website because what they're really saying is I want to borrow your link influence, not I like you, I know you, I care, this has anything to do with what you're doing. So I'm not generous to those people. I'm, I'm as rude as I can be. But someone says to me, I'm up and coming or I'm doing whatever. Or, hey, I got a podcast. You want to come on it? Hey, I'm writing a book. Can you give me some ideas? always I'm going to be there, Becky. Always, every time I say yes to everything. And even when I didn't have money, when I got that first 4000 for my friend, I gave 1000 to a friend who I knew hadn't had work for a year before. And I just said, well, I don't have a whole lot of money, but I can give you this. Maybe we can get some services out of it later in the year as time goes on or something. And somebody did that for me too later on. They, they, they sent me a, a PayPal for a 1000 bucks and said, I need some blog posts. Can you write them for me? And they didn't need any blog posts. They didn't need me. They just knew they had more money than I did at that minute. And so... I think the world works best when it works that way, Becky. And I think that you never know who's who needs something. And the more you can put yourself out there, the more you can put your whatever you have to offer out there, someone needs something. And so you can always you can always be helpful in some way. A really, really famous, successful person yesterday needed something that was reasonably simple and she didn't want to do it for herself, but she wanted to pay someone to do it. And I put her in touch with over 14,000 people I have on this little Facebook group because I knew someone in there could probably use the couple of bucks. And I'll die trying to give half of what I'm eating away to somebody else. I'm sure that's how it'll go. Well, I've benefited from the secret team myself one time or another. So I know what you're referencing there. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for investing this time with me and being generous and sharing your insights and ideas. And I got to hear some of your backstory that I had never heard before. So thank you so much for that. So typically, when we wrap up the Book Marketing Action Podcast, we leave our listeners with one or two action steps that they can take immediately to market their books or their brand. But before we do that, Chris, can you tell folks how they can stay in touch with you? I mean, my preferred way is either email me, chris at chrisbrogan.com. Or if you want my newsletter, go to chrisbrogan.com slash NL for newsletter and mm -hmm. just sign up. 
And you know, the first thing I always tell people to do if you sign up for my newsletter is hit reply the first time you get a newsletter and just talk back to me and see what happens. Everyone's like, wait, you, you really did reply. I'm like, well, it'd be stupid if I said that I would and then I just did it. So hit reply. Yeah, I kind of fall down on that because my newsletter goes out on Friday afternoons and I will often ask people questions. You know, you've coached to that, like, you know, look for a reply, have a clear call to action, whatever. And I do that. And then people email me on Friday afternoon and I'm done and it takes me two weeks to get back to them. So Uh-oh. I need to take a, a lesson out of your playbook on that one. Okay, so let's think about our conversation today and what some takeaways are. All right, here's a couple of takeaways for my thinking. One, okay. one is that, Write before you're ready to write because one thing that happens a lot of times with people is that they're waiting to be good at it, but you only get good at it by doing it. So write before you're ready to write and you'll be a lot better off in the process. You know, the way to run a marathon is run from one telephone pole to the next one and then breathe as long as it takes you to get your breath back until you can run two telephone poles and three. And if you're on a country road, then do the same measure with trees. It's fine. So write before you're ready to write, number one. Number two, Write messy. It's okay to write messy. It's okay not to know how to say something, but then go back and look at it. You either have to be a great upfront writer or a great outback editor. And that's the only two ways you can get at this. Editing is good manners, says my ex-wife. Editing is good manners. It's important to know. The other thing I would give people is write something useful, always useful. It's amazing how many people write books that please themselves, but it's not going to be useful to the world. You have to be helpful. I've given the same single piece of advice when it's a podcast question or whatever. What would your biggest piece of advice be? It'd be helpful. It's the only one I have. It's like having one suit to wear to the funerals and weddings. The reason is because so many people, we have such fear in our hearts. Like, you know, if I don't ask for something, if I don't take something, if I don't demand something, I'm not going to get mine. But in life, if you're helpful all the time, yours comes to you. It just happens. Just happens. And maybe you don't get as much. I mean, the one difference is, you can't have five Teslas. You can only have maybe one or two. <laughs> two. Be helpful, you know? And then I, last, I guess, is write something that you want people you love to read and that would change somehow people you love. You know what I mean? Write as if you're writing to someone that you care about so much. And if they had this information, it might make things better. I've bastardized that from podcasting. The way I was taught how to podcast with the voice that I chose for podcasting was Tony Khan, who's this PR, uh, this um, public radio guy from way back in the day. Tony said, the official Tony Khan voice that people ask about all the time is just that he talks as if he's reading this story to someone he loves very much. And he just really needs them to know what he has to say. It's important news for them, whatever it is, whatever he's reporting. And so... That's how I think you should write. You should write as if someone you really care about is going to get this information and and need to do something with it. That keeps you from writing grandiose things. It keeps you from writing as if you sound like you're trying to impress your professor. And it keeps you from writing fluff things because you wouldn't give your family fluff. You would give them just the good parts. I love that. Thank you so much, Chris. I look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for investing some time with us today. If you're looking for additional support on your book marketing journey, join us for the Reach More Readers Workshop, a virtual interactive event designed to give you an overview of digital book marketing strategies and tactics to help you reach the biggest possible audience. Find out more at weavinginfluence.com slash reach workshop.